0: Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is the next to the last book in what we call the Old Testament. So if you know where Matthew is, the first book of the New Testament, and you have a Bible, you can turn two books back toward the front and you will find it. Zechariah, we're going to look at the entire fourth chapter of the book of Zechariah this morning. Before I do that, I'd like to refer to something. It was a saying which I heard from my mother many times over, especially when I was having a negative attitude. She said, you're making a mountain out of a molehill, Mike. Well, I didn't know what that meant exactly when she first said that to me, but as time unfolded, I came to understand what it meant. It meant that I'm exaggerating a problem which I face way beyond what is due to that particular problem. This saying originated, according to those who study such things, in the 16th century in Great Britain. It was in the era, really, where Shakespearean work was beginning to take a hold, in the next century at least, And he had a comedy which he entitled, Much Ado About Nothing. That's really what making mountains out of molehills amount to. A mole, I haven't seen one in person, I don't think. But I know it's about the size of a mouse. It's virtually blind. A mole lives all of its life underground. And the way we know that moles are around, they build mold hills. They don't do it on purpose. It just sort of happens as they burrow through the ground close to the surface and these little mounds crop up. They're indications that there are molds which have infested that piece of ground, making mountains out of molehills. hills. Today we're going to look at that saying in reverse because God wants you to make molehills hills out of the mountains that you face in your life. And we all face mountains that cause us to want to give up. So, that having been said, let's look at Zechariah chapter 4. I'm going to comment on some things as we read along and not return to those things. But it's important that we understand a little bit about the language here and what is referenced by some of these symbols that crop up in this chapter of Scripture. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 1 says, Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who is awakened from his sleep. He said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand all of gold with its bowl on the top of it and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. Also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left side. Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And he said, No, my Lord. Now let's pause just a moment. From our perspective, we might say the angel was rude to Zechariah, who he awoke, first of all, from a deep sleep. I don't like being awakened from a deep sleep. Do you? He was awakened, and then he shows this vision, and it is confusing to Zechariah. By the way, Zechariah was a priest. He worked in the temple, God. He was given the responsibility of helping with the... Doing away with sin. He was a contemporary, by the way, of a man named Joshua, who is mentioned in the book of Ezra, from which we read, but is in close proximity in the book of Zechariah. Actually, the third chapter addresses Joshua. Joshua was the high priest. Zechariah was at a lower level. But Zechariah had that distinction of being not simply a priest, but also a prophet. There were many priests who also functioned. As prophets. But the angel doesn't answer him directly when he asks, what are these things? So let me take a stab at explaining what this vision was about. This lampstand was covered in gold. From archaeological discoveries contemporary with the time of Zechariah, there have been lampstands which have been found. And they were typically made out of clay. They were pottery, if you will. This particular lampstand would have been rather high. It would have been in diameter about the size of the trunk of a mature olive tree. We see olive trees mentioned in this passage of Scripture. And we're going to see a little later. I'm going to wait until the time is more appropriate to talk about who these two olive trees represented. But in the picture which is painted by the angel to this man, Zechariah, who conveyed it to Zerubbabel, who was, in effect, the civil leader. He was a descendant of David. I'm talking about Zerubbabel now. And he was not king. There were no more kings in the nation. But he was, in effect, a de facto king. He was the leader of the nation in terms of their civil life. He'd been given a responsibility to rebuild the temple. Keep that in mind as we go forward. The lampstand had seven lamps on it. And each one of those lamps had seven lights or wicks on them. 49 lights. That would have been a bright light, wouldn't it? But there had to be oil which went into those lamps and into those different spouts in order for the light to be emitted and to illuminate. The temple. So, that's the background of those introductory descriptions. But look what he does say, the angel, in response to the question which is raised by Zechariah. In verse 6 it says, This he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, what are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will become a plain. And he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Let's look at what mountain lay before Zerubbabel. It was a pile of rubble. That rubble was all that was left of Solomon's temple. Some 70 years before this particular event. Nebuchadnezzar's forces, the emperor of Babylon, actually the ruler of that part of the world, had come and he had torn down the walls of Jerusalem, destroying the city of David. Then he gave orders to go to the temple, the place where the one true God was worshipped, and destroyed that temple. And what was left was just a pile of rubble. Now, what we do not know, if we did not read the entire book of Zechariah, is that, as accompanied by Ezra, is that what Zerubbabel had done to this point, he had cleared away the rubble over where the foundation of the Solomon Temple was. And he had built a foundation. So he'd gotten a good start. You've got to have a sound foundation if you're going to have a building that will stand. And there was no more worthy building to that point in history than the temple. But to him, it was a great mountain. But notice the promise of God through the prophet priest Zechariah to Zerubbabel. And undoubtedly, that message was conveyed to Zerubbabel by Zechariah. He says, Look at it again in verse 7. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will become a plain. In other words, you're going to make a molehill out of this mountain. Verse 8 says, Also the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, for who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line and the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord, which range to and fro throughout the earth. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on left? And I answered the second time and said to him, what are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes, which empty the golden oil from themselves? So he answered me, saying, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, let's consider what mountains we face. Not unlike the mountains which Zerubbabel and the people of God faced. First of all, there are internal mountains which we face. These are the toughest mountains, quite frankly, for me to overcome and probably for you too. In the case of these people, if we were to turn to the second chapter of Haggai, a contemporary prophet, these people had heard from God through him as well as through Zechariah. What we discover is that they had the internal problem creeping up of apathy. Whenever God's people begin to do what God has given them to do, this applies to the individual, but especially it applies to the body of Christ. Whenever we start to do what God wants us to do, what we can be sure of is that Satan will insinuate that we need to slow down a little bit and maybe divert us into another direction. And we get off task as far as what God would have us as his people do. To do. This was a problem which these people had, and Zerubbabel, their leader, was sensing this in his own heart. Also, there was the external problem. We have internal problems. Our big problem is with ourselves, our flesh is what the Bible calls it, indwelling sin as believers. These things really bog us down and keep us from accomplishing God's purpose for our lives. But there are external problems. That's why we read from Ezra chapter 4. Did you notice the problems which existed? When these people had been miraculously set free from nearly 70 years of exile in a land 600 miles away from their beloved Jerusalem and their beloved temple. When they were set free, I can imagine every step which they took over that treacherous and lengthy journey on foot, 600 miles. They had a lilt in their step. They did not mind that long journey. And the closer they came, when they saw landmark after landmark, No signs telling how many more stadia it would be, how many more miles we would say it would be. But they got excited as they returned to their homeland. And it was a mixture of sadness because of the years that had been spent in exile because of their parents' disobedience to God and their own disobedience in some cases. And they were looking forward to it. And they got there and they were excited when they arrived. They arrived, however... To face immediate opposition. This is always true. When God has a big task for individuals. Or for his church. We can count on opposition. I remember what Paul writes to the Corinthians. From Ephesus. He said there is a wide door. For great ministry. There is great opportunity is what he was saying. For ministry here. And so I'm not coming to you. Right away, I plan to come, but there's so much fruit being born here. I believe the Spirit of God would have me to stay. And then he added to the fact that there was great opportunity, the other fact. And there is great opposition. Wherever there's great opportunity for the people of God to do what God has ordained for us to do, we can count on opposition So there was that kind of opposition. And the writer of Ezra talks about how these people who asked if they could join in the rebuilding of the temple. After all, they said about themselves, we too are descendants of Abraham. We too are children of Abraham. When in effect, they weren't. Some of them might have had some Jewish blood in them, but for the most part, they were not. But they portrayed themselves as being on an equal with the people of God who had returned from exile. And then the text goes on to say when they were refused the opportunity and good for Zerubbabel saying, No, you cannot join us. And good for Joshua the high priest saying, No, you cannot join us. They became people who were purveyors of discouragement. You know, when you and I get serious about following the Lord, We can be sure that Satan will seek to discourage us. He will tell us, you can't do it. The task is too great. And this kind of propaganda, which those who lived there, when Zerubbabel and Joshua and the others came back from exile, began to pray and play on the mind of Zerubbabel. He had built the foundation. But he had met opposition from without. These people went so far as to write letters, tattling, as it were, on these people whom, had been, set, whom they had been set free by the leader of that land. And it was a false report, by the way. Satan is the father of lies, isn't he? He does that. So what kind of opposition do you face? Do you have internal opposition? Are you afraid of what you face? You think, I can't do it. Whatever the Lord gives you to do, you say, I can't do it, Lord. I've tried. I can't do it. You've picked the wrong person for this assignment. You would not be alone in the history of God's dealing with His people. Moses, the man whom I believe, second only to Jesus, is the greatest man who ever lived. That's my opinion. It's just an opinion. The Bible doesn't really say that. But nevertheless, when God began to speak to him about delivering the people of Abraham out of over 400 years of bondage in Egypt, he got cold feet immediately. He said, I can't talk well. I'm not your man. Get somebody else, Lord. Please get somebody else. And there was this ongoing debate between Moses and God. God said, finally, shut up. He didn't exactly say what what he meant. And he did. He did. That is Moses. And God used him because he overcame the internal opposition, the internal mountain of feeling insecure. I can't do it. May I let you in on this secret if you don't already know it? Many of you know it. You can't do anything apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nada. a." You can do nothing. Apart from Jesus Christ, I can do nothing. That's important to know. It's encouraging to know that I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. Very important. And we have opposition from without. The devil is a bully. I hope you know that. And whenever you feel intimidation from another person related to your desire and your Commitment to follow the Lord, to do what God has given you to do. When you hear the voice, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't. Do you know where that comes from? It comes from the devil himself. He's a bully. He's an intimidator. He's a roaring lion seeking some tender morsel of a follower of Christ to devour. So we need to understand and recognize the voice of discouragement the voice which instills fear in us and causes us high anxiety, apathy, realizing that comes from the devil and from within us because we think our value is tied to our ability. Look, anything which comes out of us is a result of God's Spirit working in and through us. What are we to do with these mountains which we face, if they are going to become mole hills in our lives, some people ignore them. You know such people. Maybe you're such a person. We have the ostrich approach. You know what an ostrich does? When in danger, sticks its head in the sand. As if to say, if I hide my eyes from this oncoming predator, he will not see me. The big bird is going to get it, right? And so... Ignoring it is not the answer, the mountain that you face in your life. Sometimes we say, well, we'll just sort of skirt around it. We'll take the path of least resistance. Think about Jeroboam, who was the first king of the northern kingdom. His kingdom was the result of a civil war which broke out between the southern kingdom led by the heir apparent to the throne of David. We know him as Rehoboam. Rehoboam was very unwise in the way in which he related to the elders of the nation, and it resulted in a civil war. The north broke away. The ten northern tribes, leaving just the two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin. The overwhelming numbers were on the side of the north, and Jeroboam was the king. He had no relationship to David, and likely no relationship to Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what he did to preserve his own authority and power, he ordered that two golden calves be built. Does that ring a bell? You know the story of the golden calf in the book of Exodus 32, how Aaron fashioned the golden calf and the people... Worship the calf, which would be a similar kind of God figure from their days in Egypt. While Moses was up on the mountain Sinai getting the Ten Commandments. But what we do know is that what he said to the people, I'm talking about Jeroboam now, the king of the north, Israel as it was called then. He said, look, it would be too much for you to go all the way to Jerusalem to worship God. You don't have to go to the temple. We're going to have our own gods here in the north that are representative of the one true God. So, I'm going to have one put in the village of Dan, one in the village of Bethel, and you just go wherever it's closer to you and make it easy on yourselves. This is typical, far too typical, of Christianity in America today. People like me who stand behind a pulpit like this try to make it convenient for people to worship God. We don't have to make it any harder than it is. But it does call us to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses daily and follow Christ. So some people take the path of least resistance. Others just surrender. They're going full tilt. And they're moving toward the mountain. And they're expecting something to happen when they get to the mountain. But when they get there, they run up against the mountain. And they give up. They surrender. They say, why me when they face opposition in the process or when they get to that mountain? Why me, Lord? Lord Nelson, the great admiral of the British Navy, In the late 18th and early 19th century, he fought the most important naval battle to that date in the history of naval battles. He took his 27 fighting ships south from Great Britain because reconnaissance had told him that there was a massing together of 33 Fighting vessels, 18 from France, 15 from Spain, who were going to make their way. And Napoleon was their emperor at that time. And Napoleon fully intended to invade and conquer Great Britain. So, Lord Admiral Nelson very confidently went south. And the battle occurred on October the 21st of 1805. At a place called Trafalgar. Trafalgar was a place in the southwest of Spain, in the Bay of Trafalgar. And when they fought each other, after the smoke cleared and the fighting ended, there were 22 French and Spanish ships combined in their fleet, which sunk. 22 of the 33 And of the twenty-seven which he commanded, not one had been sunk. What a great battle was won. But he had to overcome some internal mountains. He was a brave man, but he was a man who believed in God too. But let me read something to you that would indicate something that would have caused me probably to surrender and maybe you too. This is what he wrote in 1802, three years before this event, to a friend, Camden, who was the Secretary of War of Great Britain at the time. He said, I'm ill at all times. And it's my enthusiastic love for the profession, meaning a seafaring warrior, which keeps me one hour at sea. Do you know what his illness was? It was seasickness. Have you ever been seasick? It's the pits, isn't it? I remember one time when I got seasick, I was excited to be with my wife and two children. We were off the coast of Florida in the Gulf. We were going fishing. And we had not gotten far from shore Then I got seasick. I'd ha- heard all the remedies how if you just keep your eye on the coastline and don't watch the water, you'll be all right. But the coastline was already out of sight, so I was in trouble. I had no Dramamine. I don't think that would have worked any So I went and I lay down in the bottom of the ship, and it was a bummer of a day for me as a result. I would never make it as a seafaring person. But here's a man who was a great hero. He overcame this problem of seasickness. He won a great battle. We can overcome our mountains, but this... It is important that we understand the method that God has given us or the means which He has made available to us. So let's look at verses 6 and 7, which contain this information. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel saying, Not by might nor by power, but my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So the first question is the means, our resources. The word translated might is a word which is used about Solomon's gathering a construction crew to build the first temple. Go, if you want to, you don't have to do it now, but go to First Kings chapter 18, and this is what you will discover. Actually, it's chapter 15, verses 18 through 23, 1 Kings 15. What you discover is he amassed a construction crew of 180,000 men. That's a big gang of men. And they were the ones who were responsible for gathering the materials to build the building. There were 3,300 foremen, if you will, construction managers who oversaw that. There were barely over 3,300 people who returned from exile to Judah under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And so we see that in that case with Solomon, there were lots of people. And by the way, the word used to describe that number of people is the word that is used here by God's Spirit, which is translated might. It was an army of construction workers. This word is also used elsewhere to describe an army that's a military army. So the idea, it's not by the collective sources which we can put together together. There's a tendency for us as the church to think, hey, let's get people who are knowledgeable in all these different areas, people who have resources financially, let's get all them together, and then we'll accomplish something great for the Lord. That is not God's way. So, it's not our resources. Is it our resolve? Do we just have to be tough-minded? Maybe like Admiral Nelson was. There's no indication from anything which he wrote except he believed in providence, as he said, that he really depended on the Lord. He was a strong man, was he? We admire people, male or female, who have that kind of internal strength to deal with the problems which are monumental, these mountains in their lives. But it's not our own resolve. Why do I say that? Because the word translated power here is a word which has to do with the power of a charismatic person. A leader. A leader that people follow. And they'll follow that leader into the teeth of death, if it need be, to accomplish a purpose. We think of such leaders from history. history, Alexander the Great, Joan of Arc. We think of these people. And we admire them, actually, from a distance. But that is not what God calls us to. We are not to undertake something as a result of collective strength, what we can put together as a team to accomplish something. Nor are we to do it because of the influence of some charismatic leader, and I'm not using the term as it's used within Christian circles. I'm talking to a person as a magnetic personality. It's not that sort of deal. It's not by might. It's not by power as it's used here. But it's by my Spirit, says the Lord of God. It's by the Holy Spirit of God that we accomplish turning mountains in our lives into molehills. We trust in the Holy Spirit of God. It is He who supplies the right kind of power. Jesus said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And this is the reason the Holy Spirit's been given to us mainly. There's a lot of secondary, subsidiary reasons, but it's that we will be His witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest part of the earth. That we bear witness of Jesus, that we share the gospel of Jesus with others. He's the one who supplies the power. The Bible says, we have not received a spirit of fear, but of power. Power. The Holy Spirit is full of power. He shares His power with us. And we have to understand, and this takes self-denial, really. We have to deny those feelings which are in us, which indicate that we don't have what it takes. Really, we don't have what it takes. We have Him who lives in us, who empowers us to do those things. The Apostle Paul said, as he wrote to the Philippians, I want to know Christ. This is His desire. I want to know Christ. Very worthy desire. Goal. Know Jesus and everything else falls into place. And the power of His resurrection. Amen? We want the power individually. We want it as a church. And here's where most people stop in their quotation. Do you know what the next part of that sentence to complete it includes? And the fellowship of sharing in your sufferings. We meet opposition, and the opposition will in most cases result in some form of suffering in our lives. Jesus said, if you're finding tribulation in your life, realize I had it first, and I'm with you. I'm with you in your trouble. I'm not going to immediately extract you from those problems. I'm going to let God do His work in you by the Spirit as He trains you to be more like the Lord Jesus. In James chapter 1, verse 12, the Bible says, Blessed is the man who perseveres in trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life and one which is reserved for all those who love God. So we will face problems, please. We will. Just like Zerubbabel, he faced internal and external problems, but he was able to overcome them. How? We know he overcame them because that temple was built. It took three to four years to build it, but it got built. It was an incredible undertaking. But restore Storing of worship as God had intended for his people was accomplished because he trusted in the Lord. The Lord equips us who know Jesus. Now let me quickly take note of this. That the church is not in the scriptures divided into clergymen and the rest of the people. Clergy and laity. In fact, if The word clergy doesn't even appear in the Bible. That's a made-up word. The word laity really is derived from the word Laos. We know that was a country at one time. It's not called that anymore. In Southeast Asia, Laos or Laos, it means people. And so we are the people of God. And each one of us is indwelled if we know Him. Each person who knows Jesus is indwelled by the Spirit of God. So we have that power of the Holy Spirit to overcome that which would cause us not to go forward when the Spirit of God tells us to go forward. When we say, we just don't have it, Lord, we can't do it. And the Spirit of God says, I know, but I do have the power. First Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has seized you, except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. The word tempted can equally well be translated tried. The word temptation can equally, and is in other places in the New Testament, translated trial. Trials come. We think we're the only ones who have the kind of problems we have. Forget about it. The devil is predictable in the way he tries people and he tempts people. And what we have available to us is a way out. Let me put a little interpretive work before you. Jesus is that way. We trust in him. I can't do it. Right on. Jesus in me gives me the power to do whatever He calls me to do. And Jesus indwells His church. Jesus is here today. Thank You, Lord. Did You know it? Did You come expecting to have an encounter with the risen Christ? He's here. He says, wherever two or three have gathered together in My name, thank You, Lord. You're here in Your people, the body of Christ. And so the Lord wants us to understand this. It's so important. The story is told of a group of missionaries who were going into the interior of Africa to a place where the gospel had never been preached. They set their camp. There were several of them. And what they would do, they would have their base camp. They would go out and try to encounter some of the people in the area and preach the gospel to them. Each evening they would return. One evening after they had been there for several days, they had chosen a site which was surrounded largely by a colony of monkeys. When they came back, the monkeys were scurrying around in the camp. In fact, they had done more than scurry. They had made a makeshift pile of wood for a fire. And not only that, some of them were circling what would be the fire, and they were extending their paws toward them. As if to say, I understand that I'm supposed to get here to get warmth from this fire. The problem was there was no fire. Here's the problem in the church today. We scurry around doing religious stuff without the power of the Spirit leading us. And we as a body, and the body is only as strong as its weakest link... And we have good news in the Scripture that God's power is made perfect. How and where? In our weakness. Our weakness does not disqualify us. In fact, it actually qualifies us. If you're strong in yourself, forget about it. You might as well go home and never come here again or do anything else for the Lord. It's in the Spirit that we have the power to do whatever God calls us to do and, more importantly, to be. God's. Spirit provides no shortcuts. i mentioned this already, that it took three to four years. It would have been nice if Zerubbabel Zerubbabel had been able to snap his fingers, and there was this beautiful temple in place. God could have done it, but he had other plans in mind. But look at verse 10. Who has despised the day of small things? We despise the day of small things. We get all excited when we hear about something going on someplace else besides where we are that's miraculous, don't we? We get stirred up about those things. But look, we do that, and we should be grateful for anything the Lord does. But really, the small things are the things that God is in as much as anything else. You think my favorite female character is, Maybe in the book of the New Testament, certainly in the book of Acts, is a lady named Tabitha. She made clothes for widows. When she died, there was great sadness because she had died. People were mourning. Widows were mourning. She had not despised the day as small things. She just made clothes. She took a natural talent which God had given her. She took her own money, I'm sure, and she made these clothes for these dear ladies who were grieving the loss of a husband and no hope of support. Don't despise the day of small things. You might say, I have nothing to contribute to the church. We're not talking about money now. Look, we're talking about ministry. Ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit and dependence upon Him. Don't despise the day of small things. I'm going to close with a quotation from Charles Spurgeon about the Holy Spirit. He says, Without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing, like ships without wind or chariots without horses. We can't do it, but with God we can. With Him, all things are possible. What is your mountain, personally? Let me close with this. In the case of Joshua the high priest, it was some sin in his life. He felt like he was disqualified. He was accused by Satan. Read about it in chapter 3. And then the Lord intervened. It would be Jesus, I believe, intervened, became his defense attorney. And he was declared guiltless. God exonerated him because of the work of Jesus, just like He's done for us. We're not to make light of sin, but when we sin, we need to know that we confess our sin, repent of our sin, receive the grace of God, and go forward. And we repeat that in future actions that we know are unacceptable to the Lord. It's all about our trusting the Holy Spirit to fill us, to control us, to empower us as individuals and as a church. Would you bow your head? Would you pray this prayer? You have to pray it from your own heart. But I'm going to pray a prayer that I prayed already today. I want to pray it again. It's always appropriate. Dear Holy Spirit, Thank you for being in me because I have received Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I'm sorry, Lord, for taking You for granted, for thinking You're an it and not a he. Thank You that You are God and You are by Your own description of Yourself in the book of Second Corinthians, Lord. So I submit to You today, Holy Spirit, would You please fill my life, guide me, direct me, help me be done. With saying I can't. When you give me direction. Help me to trust you. Because you always say I can. Thank you Lord. We ask these things. In Jesus name. Amen.